Friends, welcome to Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Word on Fire is an apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization, using media both old and new to share the faith on every continent and to facilitate an encounter with Christ and His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. Today, we invite you to join Bishop Robert Barron as he preaches the gospel and shares the warmth and light of Christ with each one of us. Peace be with you. Friends, it's our great good fortune this year that the Feast of the Nativity of John the Baptist falls on a Sunday, which gives us the opportunity to reflect on this absolutely pivotal figure. I think it's fair to say you can't really understand Jesus without understanding John, which is precisely why all four evangelists tell the story of the Baptist as a kind of overture to the story of Jesus. John sums up Israel, and without the Israelite background, the story of Jesus becomes simply opaque. I think I've quoted you before from N.T. Wright, the Anglican theologian, who said, much of the Christology of the last 200 years has been largely Marcionite in form. It's a fancy way of saying our approach to Jesus the last 200 years largely abstracts from the Old Testament. And when you do that, you don't get him. The gospel writers now insist that you get to Jesus through John meaning you get to Jesus precisely through Israel. So let me unpack that idea in the course of this homily. This Feast of John's birth brings his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, into focus. Here's what I want you to see. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth are strongly priestly personages. Elizabeth, we're told, is a descendant of the family of Aaron, who was the first priest of Israel, so designated by Moses himself. Zechariah was a practicing temple priest. That means one of these people who, on a rotation basis, would offer sacrifice in the holy temple in Jerusalem. In fact, the Annunciation of John the Baptist's birth takes place while Zechariah is performing this priestly task in the temple. So what's important for our purposes is that John the Baptist was of very priestly stock. He sums up in many ways the whole priestly tradition of Israel. Now, it was normal for the son of a priest to be a priest, So John must have grown up in and around the temple, this place of sacrifice and praise. He must have known its rituals and practices in his bones. You can imagine Zechariah bringing his young son when Zechariah's turn came around, bringing his son to the temple, introducing him to all of its arcana, all of its rituals and practices. John knew this place. So, the obvious question is this. Why, when we first hear of him in his adult life, is he out in the desert and not in the temple? How come this son of a priest 
whose parents are both extremely priestly figures, why isn't he acting as a priest in the temple? Well, there was a very long prophetic tradition stretching back to Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and especially Ezekiel that criticized the temple for its corruption. All these prophets, by the way, loved the temple. It wasn't a question of that. They loved the temple, believed in its importance, but they were aware that the temple had fallen into corruption. And so they criticized it. We've seen Ezekiel go so far as to say that the glory of Yahweh has up and left the temple. That's how bad things have gotten. Well, in John's time, the temple was mired in a very messy, vile, and violent, corrupt period. The period of King Herod and his sons. Remember, Herod the Great had built the temple, I mean, largely built the temple, that Zechariah and John would have known. Herod's children came to rule the territory of the Holy Land as John was coming of age. Well, who was Herod? Well, he was a vile figure, deeply corrupt, accomplished some great things, that's true, but deeply compromised. His children, almost as bad as he was. The temple high priesthood was often simply a political appointment. The temple priests themselves were often caught up in this, in this questionable politics of the time. What should be a place of praise has become a place of political machination, money-making, corruption. Now, the Essenes, to name another group of this time, the Essenes were Jewish ascetics, monks, we might say, who had fled to the desert around the Dead Sea in order to establish an alternative community and indeed an alternative temple. The Essenes were sharp critics of the temple and its corrupt leadership. Well, there's some reason to believe that John the Baptist, as a young man, joined the Essenes. Perhaps why the gospel says he was in the desert until the day of his manifestation to Israel. What was he doing? Maybe he had joined this group protesting the corruption of the temple. So that John now begins to form in his heart this conviction that the temple must be renewed. So when we hear of him now in his public life, what's he up to? He's drawing people away from Jerusalem, the classical center of Jewish life, out into the desert to see him and to hear him. Again, how strange this is, how counterintuitive. Everything in Jewish life moved toward Jerusalem. There all the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. They came to Jerusalem for the great festivals. And they came especially to the temple in Jerusalem. As we hear of John now in his public life for the first time, people are streaming away from Jerusalem, out to him. Here's what I think this son of a priest is doing. 
He's offering the people what the temple ought to offer but wasn't. He's offering a new, renewed temple. What's he giving them but a baptism of forgiveness? Well, that's precisely why you came to the temple in Jerusalem, was to get your sins forgiven through sacrifice. John's saying, no, not in that corrupt temple, but here, through my baptism. We might also think of it as a mikvah bath. That was the ceremonial washing that prepared someone to go into the temple to worship. So all this priestly temple business, I think, is ingredient in John's work. But there's more. Remember I said John sums up Israel. John was baptizing, not anywhere, any old place. He was baptizing by the River Jordan. Now, we associate the Jordan with him, but people in his own time would have associated the Jordan with the exodus and the conquest of the promised land. Here's this event now that's recalled at every Passover. Every pious Jew would recall this event. It was the defining moment in Israelite life. The ancient Israelites had been freed from slavery. They had crossed the desert. And then, after 40 years of wandering, they crossed the Jordan and came thereby into the promised land. The Jordan, the crossing of the Jordan, was associated, therefore, with liberation, with the achievement of the land that God wanted to give his people. Every Passover, as I mentioned, as pious Jews remember that story of liberation, they also knew that they were still laboring under a whole series of oppressors, from the Philistines to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Greeks, and now, in the time of John the Baptist, the Romans. They were dreaming that one day they would definitively get out of the desert and pass over the Jordan and come to peace. That was the hope of Israel. Therefore, baptizing in the Jordan, symbolically calling people to pass through the Jordan, John was recapitulating the Exodus. He was offering a word of freedom. Temple, forgiveness, purification, Exodus, liberation. Do you see how all these themes are drawn together in John's person and preaching? Do you see how he is a bridge figure because he sums up Israel. And then, friends, see, here's the odd thing. This great pivotal figure did not draw attention to himself. Rather, he consistently presented himself as a preparation, as a forerunner, a prophet preparing the way for someone greater. Listen, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He was, yes, summing up much of Israelite history, but stressing that this history was open-ended, unfinished. He was pointing toward the one who would be, listen now, the definitive temple, the definitive exodus the definitive liberation. 
Therefore, how powerful it was when, upon spying Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. No first century Israelite would have missed the meaning of that. Behold the one who's come to be sacrificed. Behold the sacrifice which will sum up, complete, and perfect the temple. This son of a temple priest knew what he was talking about. He was passing judgment on the old temple, but announcing the arrival of a new and definitive temple, the place where God and humanity would be reconciled. More to it, speaking of the Lamb of God, behold the Passover Lamb, who sums up the whole meaning of that event and brings it to fulfillment. And this is why John says, and it's the reason, by the way, that his feast falls right around the time of the summer solstice. Why John says, he must increase and I must decrease. In other words, the overture is complete and now the great opera begins. The preparatory work of Israel is over and now the Messiah has come to reign. One last little detail especially appropriate on this feast of the nativity of John. The infant John, we hear, leapt in his mother's womb when the infant Christ approached in his mother's womb. Long before when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem, King David danced with a reckless abandon before it. Now when the definitive Ark comes, that's Mary bearing the presence of God in her womb, when the definitive Ark comes... This new David, John the Baptist, who sums up all of Israel, dances with joy as well. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily from Bishop Robert Barron. For more resources from Bishop Barron, please visit wordonfire.org.